Good morning, Silver Mile. It's good to see everyone today. Um, a quick announcement before we jump into the message. There's going to be a soul care group starting in um, Wakefield. It will be co-led by me and Dan Coe. I know it can be intimidating to get into a soul care group, but I'm telling you this soul care group is going to be unbelievable. Um, just to share a little bit of my experience, um, this whole soul care idea and this community idea of being accountable, of confessing our sin to one another, that can be very scary, especially for a Boston crowd. And um, so I was very nervous as I joined uh, my first soul care community. But I quickly learned as I got past the period of being uncomfortable that this is what God has called us to. And uh, Jeremiah spoke, it on, spoke on it last week when he says, you all are called to work out your sanctification in community. Now, I have one beef with him. Paul was far from a Texan. He was all Bostonian, baby, no doubt. He would have said, you guys would greatly benefit from being a part of a soul care community. So if you don't have a soul care community and you're looking to be part of one, we'd love to have you. You can either see me or Dan, and it's a great way to jump into a um, deeper relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's open up with prayer before we jump into the message. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you that we can be here another morning as a body and hear from your word. We thank you for your grace. I pray that your spirit would be here to teach us, to instruct us, to shape us, to give us confidence in the work of the cross and the resurrection today, Father. And we just thank you that you will do that. Amen. So, the big question that I want to pose here to start off is, what role does the resurrection play in our justification? Would we have any hope in imputed righteousness if there was no resurrection? And I'm going to give you a quick answer. No. The resurrection is our assurance that we are justified by faith. It is our assurance that we are declared righteous. So I'm going to give you a little story that helped me understand this. And of course, I'm going to go into the trade, into the electrical field to explain it. I'm an electrician by trade. And so what you have to do is when you're about to do work on someone's house, you have to pull a permit. A lot of guys don't do permits, they don't pull permits, and they don't do the work right. I cannot stand when someone doesn't do the work right, when they don't put a J-box in, when they don't put a connector in, when they don't use the proper wire nuts. That bothers me because the work is not done right. Now, this can leave a homeowner feeling unsafe. They can fear, you know, because electricity is not anything to joke with. It's not like plumbing, you'll get wet if something goes wrong. It's not like carpentry, oh, the cabinet's off, but there's not a safety hazard. With electrical work, if you don't do the work right, the house could burn down. You fear for the safety of your children and your household, and you want to make a good investment. So you want the thing to burn down. I just did work on Matt and uh, Grace's house. They had like 400 people living in a 400-square-foot space, so they added on to the house. So I went over there to wire the addition, and so I pulled the permit for the work. I gave them my word that I would do the work right. I did it all according to the code, according to the regulations, the National Electrical Code. Made sure everything was safe. I'm a perfectionist, so every wire is bent the right way. Now, they can't have full confidence that I've done the work right 
until that an electrical inspector comes by and signs off on the permit and gives his approval. They might go to sleep and feel a little unsafe. They might think, who knows, did Joey want to cut any corners to save some money? Did he not put a J-box in? Did he leave a wire that was nicked in the wall? And believe me, I ran into a lot of safety hazards in the house, and I made sure I remedied the situation. But they can not be at peace because they don't know if this work was done right. Even if they want to believe it, they don't know if the work was done according to the law, according to the requirements of the code. Now, when the electrical inspector comes and looks at the work and sees that everything is done right, he signs off of the, on the permit and he gives his approval. Matt and Grace, everything is safe. You can raise your children in this home. You can be confident in your investment that it's not going to burn down. We know Matt's concerned with that. He's going to make sure he makes a good investment on this addition. And they can live at peace now because now the permit is signed. The resurrection is the signed permit from God, that all the work that Christ did is sufficient, that it is enough. It's our assurance that we can be confident that we are justified by faith, that we have been imputed the righteousness of Christ. Now, the doctrine of justification, some people call it the linchpin of doctrine, of the gospel. I just want to read a quote from Martin Luther, the great reformer. He said, justification is the chief article of Christian doctrine. To him who appreciates how useful its usefulness and majesty are, everything else will seem slight and turn to nothing. For what is Peter? What is Paul? What is an angel from heaven? What are all creatures compared with the article of justification? For if we know this article, we are in the clearest light. If we do not know it, we dwell in densest darkness. Therefore, if you see this article impugned or imperiled, Do not cease to resist Peter or an angel from heaven, for it cannot be sufficiently extolled. Good doctrine produces a healthy mind and a healthy heart in the children of God and those who are called by his name. We need to labor to know the doctrine of justification by faith. We need to work hard to know it. As children of God, we need to work hard to know this doctrine because this doctrine leaves no room for condemnation. I've seen so many people fall off the path or feel that Christ has left them or feel like the Father is not pleased with them anymore because they've fallen short on the law through condemnation. Condemnation brings death. Justification brings life. The voice of condemnation says, I've fallen short. I'm not worthy to be called the child of God. I'm not worthy to be reconciled with the Father. He has left me. He has forsaken me. I knew I couldn't do it. But the voice of justification says, I have fallen short, but Christ did what I could not do. And I am worthy because he lived the perfect life and became my perfection and my punishment. Therefore, I am pleasing to God. I am reconciled to my father. There is no place for fear. There's only place. There's only a place for life. And I can stand firm in that. This will change your life as a child of God. This will change your life as a husband and wife. No longer do we look at our spouses as falling short. We don't look at their frailties and their weaknesses. We all know we have them. Now we look at them as children of God who have been imputed the righteousness of God. And it changes the way we view them and the way we respond to them. Now that we know how God has treated us, we can respond with that same love. And we can give our spouses love when we feel they don't deserve it because we need love when we don't deserve it. This produces a happy home. 
a home with much joy and health and brings glory to God. When we learn, husbands learn how to treat their wives like Christ treats the church, and wives learn how to respond to their husband like the church responds to Christ. In the same way, this will affect the way you raise your children. Fathers and mothers, you've got to study this doctrine inside and out. So you know it's not by the law, but it's by grace. If you raise your children with a bunch of legalistic rules, and you teach them that they're serving a God that cannot be pleased because we all fall short of law, they will abandon the faith. But if you teach them that we serve a loving God who gave up his son and knew that we couldn't fulfill the law and knew that we would fall short and became our perfection and punishment and teach them that they can run to the arms of God and he will not leave them from forsaken or forsake them, then there will be much joy as they follow Christ. We need to teach them that they serve a God of grace, not of condemnation. A God of love so that they will run into his arms because our God is love. Now, we're going to read from the text, Romans 4, 13 through 25 today. This, um, this epistle was written by our boy Paul. Some believe it's his greatest uh, literary achievement. John Piper calls it the central bank of the Bible. Some of the major themes are the law and the gospel, the significance of Abraham and the future of Abraham. Today, Paul's really hitting on the significance of Abraham. He is saying, and he's making a very um, appealing argument to the Jews in the church, at the church of Rome. Now, he says that Abraham was not justified by the law. He was justified by faith. And let's read the first few verses as we dive in. We're going to read verses um, 13 through 50. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. You've got to understand how convincing this argument would be to the Jews at the church in Rome. They gloried greatly in their relation to Abraham. They put it in first rank to be the seed of Abraham. Now Paul's saying to them, Abraham was not justified by the law. He was justified by faith. This was contrary to any, everything they've been taught from those who sat in the seat of Moses, in the seat of the law. This was contrary to everything that they, they were taught to believe. Paul is saying it's by grace through faith that Abraham, even your forefather, who you have great pride in being his sons and daughters, he was justified by faith, not by the law. And the big point he makes is the law brings wrath, but where there is no transgression, where there is no law, He's saying, Abraham was pre-Moses. There was no law. So how could Abraham have been justified by the law if there was no law? There were no Ten Commandments. There was no law. And so he's saying, Abraham could not have been justified by the law. Now, it was helpful. I learned the definition of transgression. A transgression is a violation of a revealed command. So the Jews were held more accountable because God had revealed his law to them. So they would understand this language. And he was saying that there is no transgression where there's no law. Now, he's not saying there's no sin. We look in Romans 2.12 and we look in Romans 5.12 and we know that there's still sin. But he's making the point to say that there's no way that Abraham was justified by the law. That it was through faith that righteousness was counted to him. 
And let's read on. We're going to read verses 16 and 17. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Why does it depend on faith? And Paul said in the prior verses, he said, if it depended on the law, then what's the point of faith? Faith is null and void. He's saying it depends on faith. And I'm going to give you three reasons that this text teaches us of why it depends on faith. Number one, because God gets all the glory. It depends on faith so we cannot take pride that we have followed the law, that we deserve salvation, that we deserve to be reconciled to the Father. When it's by grace, through faith, all the glory goes to God. There's no room for boasting in this kingdom. There's no room for boasting in heaven. It's a gift from God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. This kills pride. When it depends on faith, I have to glory in my Father who made it possible that I could access his righteousness through faith. Number two, so it can be sure. Imagine that salvation and all the promises of God depended on the law. That's horrible news. We're supposed to be preaching good news. If you're preaching that gospel, you are preaching some bad news. Because we all fall short of the glory of God, it tells us in Romans 3.23. But the good news is that we can be sure because it's by faith, because we trust in the person and work of Jesus, because we trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus. I can have no confidence if it's by the law, because you should have no confidence if salvation comes through the law, because we all would be condemned already. But because it comes through faith, we can have confidence and we can be sure. In the same way, The promise is so that it will be sure to all. Now, I'm not a Jewish fellow. I'm glad he called the Gentiles to know him. I'm glad that this isn't just for the covenant people. Thank God he made the covenant to the the Gentiles like myself and us. Not saying there's not any Jewish folks in here, but I'm saying I myself am a Gentile. I'm thankful that the promise is to us all. That God, through Abraham, blessed all the nations, not only his covenant people, but he blessed us, Bostonians, Cambridge, Medford, Wakefield. The promise can be sure to all. That's why it depends on faith. Now, then Paul goes to commend the strength of Abraham's faith. And let's read on into that portion. We're going to start in verse 18 there. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Now, the worst thing we can do is read those few verses and say, man, i got to have faith like Abraham. 
Abraham didn't have faith because he was Mr. Willpower. His faith was built as he had a big, big view of who his God was. He looked at his God. He said he's holy. He's trustworthy. He's faithful. He's omnipotent. He can be trusted. Every word that comes from his mouth, I can bank my life on it. I can put faith in my father. And that built his faith. That's why his faith did not weaken when trials came, when tribulations came, when suffering came, when he's standing there 100 years old. And God says, you're going to have a kid. Can you imagine? My father-in-law, I'm going to pick on him a little bit. He loves me. He's 73 years old. If God came to him in the night and said, Joe Vec, you're going to have a child and continue your line. He would have said, are you kidding me? I can barely walk up the stairs anymore. He can. He's in good shape. Old school Italian, laying brick to the 99. <laughs> but he would say, and he's only 73. Add about 25 more years on him and have God come tell you, man, you're going to produce a child. He would say, man, I'm past my prime breeding years. It took him 47 years to have Natalie. <laughs> but Abraham, when God spoke what seemed to be impossible... He would look at his own circumstances, look at his own life and say, that's not possible. He said, it is possible because God promised it would happen. And if he said it would happen, it's going to happen. I'm not going to be shaken. I'm not going to be tossed to and fro. I'm not going to go back and forth. I'm not going to be up and down. I'm going to stand fast because my God reigns. And when he makes a promise, I can stand on it. That's why Abraham didn't waver or fall or didn't weaken in his faith because he knew who God was. And that built his faith. And when we give glory to God, when we trust in God, we bring glory to God. We have no reason not to trust him. We should put all our faith in him. Now, let's read on. Verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised the dead, raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. We can understand when we read these stories of these Old Testament state, uh, saints, it's not only for that it would be a good history lesson. They're precedents for direction. God is setting a pattern for us to follow. And this is what Paul's saying. In the same way that when Abraham believed the promises of God, it was counted to him as righteousness. When we put our faith in God for our salvation, it is counted to us as righteousness. That same pattern can be followed. It's not by the law. It's not by adhering to the law. It's by grace through faith that you are counted righteous. Now, I want to give a little imputation 101. Because of the constraints on time, I can't, you know... This is the point of this message that he was raised for our justification. So I'm going to give you a one-on-one quick view of imputation. We are all sinners. I don't have to give a great argument for that. You guys pretty much know that. You live with yourself long enough. We're guilty by association with our father Adam. We're imputed his sin and his guilt. If we look early in Romans, it teaches us that. If you have a beef with that, you've fallen short and broken the law. You've transgressed the law. So we are sinners. Therefore, we should be objects of God's wrath. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. God is both loving and just. 
You can't separate the two. Someone has to satisfy the divine justice of God. Now, we deserve it, every one of us. There's not just some people who are misunderstood. You had a bad childhood. You're not a sinner. We're all sinners. And we all should be objects of wrath. God should be pouring it out on us. But what does the God of love do? The God of grace do? He sends his son to live the perfect life that we cannot live. To die the death that we could not die. And he becomes the object of wrath. He becomes the propitiation for our sins. And he satisfies the divine justice of the Father. This is called the great exchange. At least Martin Luther called it the great exchange. So I got a little story for you. Trying to think of the best way to understand this great exchange of our sin. Our filthy, disgusting, wretched sin put on Jesus on the cross. And he imputes his perfect life to us. So we're at soul care. And you know when they see you off, everyone just sits in a circle and tells you how good you are. If I knew it was going to be like that, I would have got there much earlier. So we're sitting around. Everyone's telling you how awesome you are. And they spent a few months with you, all that good stuff. And I'm there with my whole family. Natalie's there. Talia's there. Kara's there. And um, also Gordon's there with Elsa and um, Axel. And so we're sitting there. We're talking. My daughter has this little ambulance that always makes noise when it's not supposed to. Like someone's deep in prayer and she just started up. And she's a little girl. She doesn't really care about a truck. That thing's useless to her. Axel's walking around with this big sugar cookie. Now a sugar cookie, any type of cookie in a child's world, that's top notch. So Axel's walking around with the cookie. Somehow Kara gets in front of Axel It makes this exchange. She gives them this ambulance that makes noise when it's not supposed to for the sugar cookie. And I say, I look at Gordon Gordon and say, man, that's not a fair trade. And I look at Natalie. Natalie, do you see that? Natalie looks at me and says, Elsa said it's all right. I said, all right. Gordon says, Axel don't care. He never fights over anything. You know, Axel just has that look like, my life is good. My (laughs) My mom and dad love me. I have no worries. Axel didn't care. And they said it was all right. They said, this is a fair trade. This is a good exchange. And I'm thinking, man, that's a great exchange. That kid got a cookie for an ambulance that made noise when it's not supposed to. In the same way, we are imputed the righteousness of Christ for our dirty sin. We got the cookie. That's great news. Now I can stand righteous before God because I stand in his righteousness. God is not not pleased with me. Because I have fallen short, he is pleased because Christ fulfilled the law and he becomes my perfection. I am pleasing to God. There's no condemnation now for those who are in Christ Jesus because they're in, we are in Christ. Now, let's wrap this up like Paul wraps this up. He says, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, this is a brief explanation of the gospel, and it's the two hinges which the door of salvation swings on. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He paid the price for our sin so that we could be imputed his righteousness, and he was raised for our justification so that we can have confidence that the work is done right. The permit is signed off. God, the great inspector in the sky, has said Jesus His work was perfect. He met the the righteous requirements of the law. It is finished. It is done. Every believer, just like Abraham, can put their faith in Christ and be confident that they are justified by faith. 
With every step, we are declared righteous. That's why we sing like we do. That's why we love like we do. That's why we're shattered by the grace of God, because it's undeserved. There's no place for us to boast. He was raised, therefore we are justified. How should we respond to this? Number one, you are armed with good news. Tell everybody about it. That's great news. We're not calling them into a system of works. We're calling them into a system of grace where a loving father is in charge. Where even though we fall short, he didn't. And we are justified by faith. Another great response is what we're about to do. Sing with all our hearts to a God who is worthy. Because we are undeserving sinners who were saved by grace. And that work is finished. Why can we be confident that we are justified by faith? Because he is risen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this wonderful truth. You're such a good father. We can't even comprehend how loving you are that you would do this for us. This exchange doesn't seem fair to us, Lord, but you considered it righteous. righteous. And we thank you that you are that kind of God, you are that kind of Father, that we are declared righteous. And it's not by the law, Lord, or we would fall short, but it's by grace, and we'll be singing all of eternity because of this truth, Father. Bless us as we come to worship your name. Amen.